Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this period of COVID pandemic. Today, we'll be having our second ever Shelter and Solidarity social hour under the theme of pandemic times, what are we watching, what are we reading, and why? It's no secret that millions of us over the last few months have been shut in, for the most part, sheltering in place to the extent that we can if our privilege affords us that opportunity. What have people been watching during this period and why? What have people been drawn to during this moment of pandemic and why? What have people been repelled from that they might usually be engaging? Uh, the premise of today's show is that we have a lot to learn, not only from the intellectual and political work that people may be doing in an organized way, but also by the, the leisure activities uh, that people may be taking on in their own homes as they spend uncounted hours alone or with a partner or with roommates at home, watching Netflix, watching movies, watching television shows, and of course, inevitably thinking and reflecting on them and thinking about what they mean to this moment. Uh, we're hoping today to not only learn what people are watching and maybe get some good suggestions and some insights from some of the watching and reading that's going on, but also maybe to take a little bit of a, a reflective turn and think what is it about these items, these uh, narratives that we're turning to, whether it's on the page or on film, television, other, other media, what, is, uh, what are we learning when we reflect on what we want and don't want to watch in this moment? What can we learn not only from the texts themselves, but from our own relationship to them and their relationship to this, this unprecedented moment that we are very much still in. So today it's a bit lighter, fair, but not without substance. It's a bit of a more cultural time and we do uh, look forward to having a, a round table discussion with uh, those who are joining us here on Zoom. Uh, yeah, and I actually be uh, joined today by a very special co-host who has been doing a lot of work for the show as a producer but who's now stepping into a role as co-host. This person is, is Linda Liu, who is not only a co-producer of the show and my colleague at UMass Boston, but also my partner. Uh, and so most of the watching we do actually happens together. Uh, we are very much a partner in all things, and that includes watching our fair share of narrative in the evenings when all the working day is done. Linda, thank you uh, for being here. Nice to see you uh, uh, here on Zoom. Thanks. Um, I'm in front of the camera for the first time so um so anyways um 
I kind of had some parameters for our conversation and um, I'm hoping they're broad enough to give those of you who want to participate some room to talk about what you've been watching and reading um, and the kinds of media we're finding ourselves drawn to these days. So I'm thinking that we all probably have our own favorite or cherished texts and also our own media habits. And these can of course range widely. And there's likely going to be some texts we share today that are not common to us all. So I was just thinking that instead of only talking about the texts themselves, uh, maybe we can try to draw out some of the commonalities between our watching and reading, uh, particularly regarding what we've been feeling um, and what we've been drawn to uh, since the pandemic started. So uh, at least for me, since this pandemic started being taken seriously in lockdown, lockdowns began in the US, I found myself gravitating towards certain kinds of texts, genres and narratives, and really trying to avoid others altogether sometimes. So I'm interested to know if you've been gravitating one way or another too. And um, just to take one instance, uh, my co-host and partner in all things Joe, uh, Joe and I had a particularly emblematic semi-disagreement last night over what to watch. Um, and <laughs> if you don't want to get personal when you share, don't feel obligated to by any means. Uh, but we both thought that what happened seemed like, seemed like a good incident to share uh, for this episode. So I'm going to... I have approved this message. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to share an image of only and that's the name of the film actually it's only right right so so we started watching the film only um and it was actually my my choice because I saw that it was number three on Netflix yesterday, and I all I always feel like Netflix is some kind of some kind of cultural barometer sometimes for like maybe mainstream mainstream tastes. Um, so we started watching the film Only, uh, which is about a pandemic that is killing only women. And uh, men are carriers of this thing too, uh, but they don't show any symptoms. So the few women who haven't contracted the disease are rounded up by the US government and various unsavory non-governmental actors in order to mine their breeding capacity. And in the meantime, the government is also trying to create an artificial womb machine Right, so that would uh, supplant the need for, for women. And our protagonists 
are a young couple, a man and a woman who've been quarantining together for a long time. And this scenario maybe hit a little too close to home for us to finish watching. Uh, let's just say there were one too many scenes involving Lysol, uh, sealing entryways in plastic, and uh, arguments about how to be safe. So um, lately I've been trying to watch films about apocalypse and dystopias and pretty dark films pretty, pretty regularly. Um, I think because I'm especially drawn to them now, but also because the focus of next week's show is on apocalyptic and dystopian narratives. So uh, there's a plug for our next show. Um, and even though I'm drawn to them, I don't think Joe feels the same way. Um, just as I'm aware that some people are purposely avoiding these kinds of texts and films. Uh, so, Joe, so Joe started objecting partway through the film and, uh, and there was a little bit of struggle and we eventually agreed to stop watching it. Um, anyways, this was kind of a semi-disagreement. Um, and it got me interested in other people's tolerance levels and sensitivities in recent days to various kinds of media. Uh, Joe, would you care to comment? <laughs> uh, sure, yeah. Um, I wonder if we could take down the image at this point, because uh, I just like to be able to see people. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, Linda points to something very real. Like we've, I mean, since the pandemic's begun, we've, we've watched, I'd say, I, I, I don't have a list in front of me. Well, I do have a list, but not of just these. Um, we've watched, I mean, probably at least 10, 15, maybe, maybe not 20, but I think more than 10 films, probably more than a dozen that could count as apocalyptic or dystopian, some more recent. Um, some from years ago. It's interesting to see how this genre emerges uh, and evolves over time. And I do really do want to plug next week's show with Mark Soderstrom, who's on this call as well, and hopefully we'll hear his voice at some point, as well as Jerry Canavan and Linda, who is a, a media scholar as well as a producer of the show and my partner and a union colleague. It's going to be a great, I think, political cultural discussion. And I, and I am not turned off of, of uh, dystopia in general, but something about last night's show, it just felt like I don't know if I've just watched so many of these that at a certain point it gets really heavy or if it was something about the particular narrative that was either too close to home, like too realistic. Maybe it was because it was a, it was a lot of the narrative and I'm not going to spoil the, the narrative for folks. In fact, I can't because we stopped it in the middle. We haven't watched the rest, though we probably will. But maybe it was that attention to like the ceiling of the home and the way it was a kind of, and the kind of claustrophobia of that you know, uh, of watching that, which became a bit much for me. And also I think, frankly, and I don't want to be too sappy here, but the gendered component of it um, was disturbing to me, partly because it's very hard for me to imagine getting through uh, a moment like this or life in general without, without my partner, Linda. And so, you know, again, without spoiling the plot, this is pretty much the premise of the movie, is that the main one of the main characters, of course, you know it's a disease only the women can get, and the woman, the main female character, gets it. And I don't actually know what happens to her, although I assume there's no good end here, um, it, you know, because it seems like a, something you can't survive. But I, it was very hard for me to, uh, you know, to, to enjoy that, you know, in the way that 
you know, I think there's a certain separation sometimes that is required to then like sublimate the insights, you know, oh, what is this film saying about the social imagination of what form disaster may come in or, you know, like Independence Day or uh, Deep Impact, you know, and I'm interested in, you know, films like that, which we've watched recently, right, in terms of like, how do they imagine the world's response to pandemic or, 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 or to apocalyptic events, right, and the fantasies of the government saving people, right? I mean, we've talked, we watched Contagion, which is a very realistic film, right? Um, right when the pandemic started, you know, very, like, it's one of those films that was really researched, like, seriously by the director. And I had no problem with that. I watched it probably four times. I watched it with you, Linda. I watched it with my students, changed the syllabus, had them watch it in my pop culture class. And there's all these interesting things we could say. I won't say them now. Maybe we can leave that for next week or maybe the discussion, we could pick it up. There's all these sociological, you know, it, things, right, I thought was interesting. How is the government being shown? How is that similar to the way our government, so-called our government, has performed of late? How are the people shown in that film, right? In terms of, you know, how they respond and the way that people become this like mob of dangerous people compared to the way we've seen people, everyday people responding to this. So I'm like not against, you know, uh, pandemic films. I'm not against apocalyptic films, dystopian films. I love, I mean, I, I love teasing these things out, but you're right. Like my intellectual side hit a limit last night and I was like, I just can't handle this. Can we watch a comedy? And I think we ended up watching three episodes of of the show, the canceled show, Community, right? Which is about, at least imagines a community, a, a, a band of outsiders who form a study group at a community college. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, I guess as much as we can be intellectual sometimes, the emotional uh, aspect can, can uh, is there too. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's my side of the story. Can I ask a question to you guys? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm curious, Linda first, and then Joe. And this is Tim Sheard, by the way, folks. Tim is one of the co-producers of the show as well, and you know him from hosting previous previous episodes uh, and on, on similar topics. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Um, I believe I started watching this movie some time ago and, and didn't want to go past 10 or 15 minutes, but isn't this a movie where women are treated really harshly and badly? I mean, women are not treated well in this movie, right? No, they're And not I found that so offensive. Yeah. And there are a lot of movies like that where women yeah. are just, you know, imprisoned and or all made to wear the red red veil and, and so on. I found it, I don't care if it's supposed to be an allegory about our society and a, and a criticism, a critique of, of, of sexism. I, I just find it just so appalling and, and, and unsettling that I, I don't want to watch it. So I'm curious if that was an aspect of how you, Linda, reacted and then how Joe reacted. Yeah, I mean, I was the one reacting and Linda was the one reflecting last night, you know, which is probably not the first time we've been in that dynamic, but, but never, I don't think we've ever, I don't ever remember. We've been together for what, four, more than four years and, you know, three, three, three years living together or whatever, right? And I don't think we've ever stopped a movie the way that we did last night. I mean, I, except for like reason of me falling asleep or something, you know, like, like, but never like we have to stop this. This is like this is like bothering me. Like I got, right? I mean, unless I'm misremembering. I don't know, Linda, what was your take? Uh, I, th I think the, the, uh, the gender parts of it were, were 
pretty hard to watch just the um just how harshly the the women were treated and how they were just being rounded up and um hunted basically they couldn't be they couldn't live free um and so um and these are just the few women who have been left uh alive after most of the world's women have been have been decimated so yeah so that that was pretty pretty hard to watch and i think that was part of that probably played into my response too i think i mean it, even the, the women that weren't sick right were being treated like this scarce commodity that needed to be, there were like million dollar heads, you know, uh, bounties on their heads so the government can round them up. And here I'm verging on spoilers. I won't go beyond this. Uh, but to say, you know, that they, uh, you know, th there was like million or $2 million bounties on women's heads so they can put them in like some kind of breeding program, right? Uh, to keep the, keep the race alive, keep the human race alive. So yeah, even like the ones that weren't sick and suffering in that sense were like in jeopardy. And I do think that, all made it hit me on a level that uh that yeah maybe the usual the typical dystopian uh film of late didn't and that's not an endorsement of the film either I, I mean it also maybe it just you know didn't hook me in some ways but but i do think it was symptomatic and or emblematic uh and so i think it's an interesting place to start but it's not a it's not a point of against dystopian or apocalyptic films in general which i think can be really interesting and is sometimes where some of the most interesting imagining of the society, you know, happens, you know, the, the kind of big picture views of, of like how society works in a crisis, right? Very seldom do we get like a really good treatment of the, gov the, the great depression, you know, in, in popular culture, right? If we get it, it's like a zoomed in melodrama of like Russell Crowe or something, you know, like trying to keep off welfare with his white working class family, right? In like, you know, um, but but sci-fi and dystopia sometimes allows us to think big, right? Like like try to think society as a whole in some way, right? And I I actually really like that. Although this one also was very zoomed in on a particular couple, which might have also like fed my claustrophobia. I, I don't think I have claustrophobia per se, but a media version of uh, feeling narrowed and closed in by this thing. Yeah. Um, I know, Linda, do you want to say more about that or should we bring in some other people? What do you think? Yeah, let's let's bring in some other people. Um, who who's ready or who who'd like to who'd like to share? I think Bobby Lee had indicated it. I, I think we have Bobby Lee and Tim and maybe Mark. Yeah. I have a little comment too. Oh I, I heard Victor, so I'll let him go first and then I'll I, I just had a a, a semi-facetious comment about your disagreement because my partner, Inez. Uh, is a film theorist. She watches films all the time. And we have a simple solution to that kind of problem. She continues to watch the film and I go and do something else. And then she tells me what happens. <laughs> that is, that's that's it, all I wanted to say right yeah, now. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. I mean, it, sometimes I have, I think there are times when I've gone to bed, you know, like, and Linda finishes something. That has definitely happened. But this was like kind of relatively early in the night. And I guess we just don't have as many places to go in the evening now, you know, so I didn't, you know, I guess I, I wasn't ready for bed and pretty much that's, you know, and I wasn't going to go uh, work out in the basement. So I, I just think I didn't have, uh, maybe I didn't have the options, uh, the options to escape. Yeah, that's a good point. That's one solution. <laughs> All right. Uh, Bobby Lee. 
Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate to some extent. I mean, and I was also going to say Linda might be more comfortable with it because we watch it and we go, yeah, that's pretty much how we're treated. Like, there's just like a nice icing on it, but that's pretty much how women are treated, like objects for breeding. And that's, you know, what we owe people. Um, So maybe like, I think sometimes that can make people who aren't used to that treatment feel a certain type of way. Um, But yeah, like I, I used to love cop shows like I like all things crime I like all things dead bodies like that's just my area um but I've more not like recent recent but within like the last year or so I cannot watch police dramas outside of like law and order SVU and the only reason I can even still watch that is because it's comfort so even though it's like rape and all of this like you know the storyline right like this is gonna happen 20 minutes in we're gonna know who did it I can kind of tune out for a while while I do homework or read or something else or grade papers. And then I can tune in the last five minutes and find out why and who did it and what happened. Right. So it's, it's like a comforting kind of show, but I still get irritated with them because of the narrative they're pushing and the way they're shoving that cops are always good. And even when they do bad things, it doesn't have to be bad. And right. Like they did it because they had to, and it's a bit, so I understand like the aversion to things. Um, and I'm going to open myself up for a lot of judgment with this. Um, But I am a romance novel junkie. Like I have probably, I've been reading romance novels for over 20 years and I'm only 36. So my mom had no clue what she was giving me when she handed me the first book. Um, But I I have read hundreds of them. And even though they're my go-to, I've had to shift away from some of them because the world sometimes feels hopeless. And so reading these like happy stories, I'm like, yeah, that shouldn't get to happen right now, right? So I can't even like continue to read the things that I like, or I've had to shift to like the crazy weird ones. Like there's a series called Ice Planet Barbarians and it is bonkers. And there are very few women and it is just crazy. And there's giant blue aliens. And I mean, it's just weird and bonkers, but the women are treated because there's so few of them. They're not treated as, um, they're not treated negatively, they're treated as like something you should revere and uphold and, and you should, you know, like the women get to choose their mates. And, the, and so it's just this weird thing, but it's like, I have to read something that outlandish because the stuff that's too real, even though I love contemporary romances by women of color, about people of color, I can give you a whole list of great, amazing women of color romance authors in contemporary times they're too real right now. They're, the characters are struggling with depression or anxiety. They're struggling with body image issues and loving themselves. And I mean, there's just so much going on because it's, but it's too real. So I understand wanting to get away from it, but also sometimes wanting to fall back in. I just finished one last night, not the weird ice planet one, <laughs> but it was by Talia Hibbert and it was called get a life Chloe Brown, but she has fibromyalgia and he has trust issues. And I mean, and you watch them work through it and it was great, but I'm like crying in this book. And I was like, okay, now I need something happy. So I went to my mom's and watched the babysitter's club. Like, <laughs> so it's like trying to find it. I'm all over the place. I, I'm, you know, very eclectic in my taste, um, but yeah. That, that totally makes sense to me that when something's too real, right? Um, you, you kind of have a hard time getting through it right um which is why we need things like the babysitter's club um i i I used to love the babysitter's club i think i have to watch that again but um watch it there's the one little girl i can't remember her name right now i'm trying to dress like her she's like 13 in the show but i was like why is her fashion so good watch it i'm just gonna say watch it okay i will all right does anybody else 
want to go? I think, I think we had, I think Tim's ready to share it. Yeah. Sure. Speak actually an interesting link from Bobby Lee's comments, I think, to, to Tim. Yeah, thanks. Bobby, um, I admire your, your taste in romance and I will defend romance stories. And you know, if, if I'm not a scholar or anything, but I've heard from the real scholars that a crime story, a mystery story is actually a romance. Because, uh, a, well, actually, I'll take that back. A romance story is, and a crime story are both comedies in theatrical terms, because they both have a happy ending where people end up together. And in a crime story, the, the bad person is brought to justice. And so that's similar to the, the, the pair finding love. It's a happy conclusion to what you, you want society to have. It's the, it's the kind of world you want to live in. And so they're, they're very similar that way. And, that, and I think that they're both satisfying because they have an ending that promises a better future, right? If, the, if all the bad people are put away, say the crime story uh, writers and producers, then we'll have a happy society. And if every, every man and woman finds their true love, we'll have a happy society. It's very simplistic, but it, they're both appealing, I think, in a similar way. And you're <laughs> muted, Bobby, so. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that's why I liked crime shows, right? Like you always get, somebody always gets caught. Somebody, I mean, I do like true crime. That's actually my area of emphasis, like through my sociology degree was criminal justice and, and all of that. Um, fascinated by serial killers, like what creates them, what makes them what they are. Um, but yeah, like the crime shows, somebody always gets caught. There's always justice. There's always vengeance. The romance novel, they always end up together. Um, and And it is, it's a fun, lovely escape. But then Sometimes it's like, especially right now with what we're dealing with, it's like, okay, look, I'm 36 and single. I don't, I don't know if I want to read another fucking romance about this happy ending that's not guaranteed. Right? So then that's when I go into like the darker stuff. And then, so I think it depends. I think what Joe said, like, it depends on the mood that you're in too, right? Like what headspace you're in. Cause I go from who killed Malcolm X to, you know, the babysitters club to, um, I've got a whole list here of things that I've, to good girls I don't know if you all watch that show good girls but like that which is like suburban moms who turn into like drug lord like money launderers for a, a you know gang I mean so it's just like all over the place just like what what escape do I need today or do I want to be real like do I want to really read something that's educational do I want to learn something what's what's my headspace and especially in this pandemic I think that shifts from day to day and hour to hour <laughs> you know there's two interesting points already. One is like how many texts that have been mentioned that I just don't know, which also raises the question, like we used to think, you know, what you watch on television or movies is like mass culture that connects everyone. But I feel like there's now, there's also so much proliferation. Like even if your full-time job was to just watch media narrative all the time, even if you watched it at 1.5 speed as sometimes I'm tempted to for certain things, you still can't get to everything. So what is that, the implications for how, you know, for pop cultures, or we used to call pop culture or whatever, you know, in a question of the people, right? What, what, what's the people's culture from the people to the people, whatever. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, like, are there texts that we all, everyone who's on this Zoom right now would share in common that we've watched? I wonder, not, I'm not gonna do a poll, but I mean, I think that's an interesting thing. Uh, can we assume that level of common reference. I'm sure for some things, maybe. Um, I don't know if people want to speak to that. I have another question for Tim, but I'll, I'll wait. 
Well, certainly many of us have watched at some point the first uh, Law and Order, the first couple of years, the original series. And there was a lot of social criticism in there, right? There was a lot of social criticism uh, about, about uh, racism and uh, corporate malfeasance and corruption in government. There was a very poignant story early on where a young a black child uh, is paid money to, to shoot someone and he goes to the wrong address and kills the wrong person. And it turns out in the end in the trial that he can't read because he went to a school that never taught him to read and he dropped out of school. And it was a very poignant critique of, of the of the you know the educational system in New York City and the and the racial disparities. So there's a lot to be said for crime stories also as a as a vehicle for social criticism. Well, and that was actually my question for you, Tim, because for those who don't know, I mean, Tim Sheard is not only you know someone who uh, worked a career as a nurse, uh, as a labor organizer, a producer of the show, um, but also as a novelist with. Remind me how many again, uh, Eleven. Eleven novels uh, in what you call the medical mystery genre. Is that right? Right. So right. rather than having a cop, you know, a police officer as the, or a detective, right, as, you know, as the, the, the private eye or whatever, as the, as the investigator putting, you, you have a, a janitor, is that right? A medical, a right. nurse, right? Who's he's, the point a, he's, a, he's a hospital janitor and he's a union shop steward. Right, so right, which is awesome. So, Mark, you know, Mark, write that down. We're gonna hear your thoughts. No, but um, but my question is, like, how do you uh, see your own work as a writer? I know we're changing things up a little bit here, but uh, the the genre that you're crafting, or the subgenre, or the the riff on existing genres, compared to what you said earlier about crime stories as comedies, you know, that reassure us in some sense about that we live in a world where the the you know the bad guys get caught, you know, and we can, and we can sometimes flush the sin, you know, uh, with the help of the proper procedure. Uh, I don't know, how do you position your own work, Tim, in terms of that? Well, again, my stories, uh, the majority of them involve a union shop steward. So there's always a labor struggle and it, they're based on, you know, real labor uh, attacks on labor that we see today. So in one story, um, the hospital is taken over by a hedge fund and turned to, to a for-profit and they've refused to recognize the union, which has been there for years. They said, we didn't sign your contract. And so there's a whole battle of whether they can save, save their union contract and so on. So you can, you can use a, um, your, your basic story of a crime story, but you, you can also get at other issues uh, that, the, that everyone's battling. And, um, you know, there's a lot of issues of racism and, and, uh, uh, arresting a young black man in my first book, arresting a young black man uh, for murder when he's obviously innocent, but who are you going to, who are the police going to go for, right? A young black worker with a, a temper. So um, yeah, it's, it's a way to, um, to show workers fighting back and struggling and working together. And uh, you know, a lot of amateur sleuths are uh, professionals. They're doctors, psychiatrists. And I wanted to make it a, everyday working class guy. So he's a hospital custodian. And that's, that's how I could show his friends and his friends and co-workers who were, you know, um, the morgue attendant, the dietary aide, the ward clerk, uh, the messenger, the pharmacist. I wanted to show the hospital workers what today we call essential workers, right? Today, it's like, oh, guess what? The media is, is recognizing them. But a lot of, um, a lot of good literature, I think, can, can show you that the essential workers, the essential people who who uh, make a hospital or any industry make it make it happen make it work 
So that's really an, another goal for writing these kinds of stories. And Tim, didn't you in fact write, speaking of like novels that speak to our present or narratives that speak to the present, didn't you write one novel years ago about a pandemic and, and feature hospitals that were unprepared and didn't have the PPE? And I mean, what you, I mean, talk about fiction that anticipates reality, right? Like uh, Marx talked about Balzac as teaching him more about political economy than most uh, formal economy. I forget if it was the French or the English he was criticizing, but, yeah, but yeah. could you say a little bit about this? Is that true? I mean, and, and could you it, give us the name it, of that for, you know, name of that book? Yeah. Um, oh boy. Um, uh, well, what's the I name? I want to say someone has to die. It's the Lenny uh, Mock. I'd, I'd have to look, I'd have to look over my titles. There, there are nine of them in the series. Uh, this book came out about three years ago. It, it was based on um, an outbreak of a, new virulent strain of the Zika virus. So it was fictionalized in that way, but and then the coronavirus today is like a fictional monster. It's so horrible. But there was an outbreak uh, of the Zika virus and the pregnant women are all terrified that they're, they're, they're gonna be stung or they'll be you know, ex uh, exposed to it and that their child will be malformed. And in my uh, story, it can be transmitted by droplets from sputum, which is a bit of a stretch, but it's certainly, for a virus, it certainly could be in your lungs and in your airway. And so there's a whole fight in the hospital to get enough PPEs and negative pressure rooms and HEPA filters so they can care for this big influx of, of Zika virus patients who were coming into the hospital. And it was, it is a little bit eerie to read it and say, oh, this sounds kind of familiar, but I actually, it came out three or four years ago. Yeah. Guess somebody's been paying attention. Yeah. Anyway, let me just say one thing. I'm just going to mention one movie since we're talking about what we're, what we're watching and what we're enjoying. And my wife and I both really enjoy the romantic comedies from the 1930s and the 40s. And um, they're, they're, they're funny and they're sweet and uh, they're whimsical. And um, they also, again, make social, often make social commentary. Remember, this is during the Depression or, or, or during the war. And so one, one example, My Man Godfrey uh, with William Powell and Carol Lombard is a zany comedy uh, with William Powell uh, playing uh, what they call a forgotten man. He's a homeless man uh, living at a, in a garbage dump on the East River Manhattan with a lot of other men who were out of work at the height of the depression. It was 1936 when it was, when it was released. Um, and the ditzy young daughter of a very wealthy Upper East Side family is on a scavenger hunt and she's supposed to find a forgotten man and bring him to this party of the ultra rich. And so she can win this, win a prize. So she finds William Powell and brings him to, uh, with his shabby clothes and his unshaven face, brings him to this party of these wealthy elites in Manhattan. And of course, the, the, many of the patrons look down on him, but William Powell expresses so much pathos. He is such a poignant uh, character. Uh, it's one of the finest performances when he explains to this ditzy young woman why he's homeless and why, why he doesn't have a job. Um, and it's just a great performance. And then they, they hire William Powell as a butler. And it turns out as the movie progresses, that there's more to him than meets the eye. 
a lot more to him than meets the eye. And there are problems with the family and the, the father may lose everything from the stock market and they may lose everything and, and so on. But um, through it all, William Powell manages to uh, collect or, or put together through his own smart investments enough money uh, that he can build a housing project over the garbage dump for these homeless men and give them jobs. He, he, he puts up a casino or something in a, a nightclub and all the homeless men are given a job and he becomes the proprietor. So it's a fantasy about curing the ills of capitalism, which in, in, in one way is a silly Hollywood uh, storyline, but it, it does show you, I think in a, in a really poignant and touching way, uh, how many people are suffering during the depression. And of course it resonates today with so many people not only out of work, but so many people not sure if the, that job they have is going to be there tomorrow because there are more layoffs coming. The, you know, the recession is, is likely going to deepen. Um, so there's some very nice, uh, you know, comments and there's some funny jokes about the Soviet Union that are quite good, quite funny for, for the time. They're pre pretty risque. And um, uh, of course, William Powell and the, and, the, and the young daughter end up together in the very, very end, in the very last scene the end of the very last scene. And that's what you want to see because all of us um, want to find someone that we can live with and be happy with. And I mean, we all want to love someone and be loved. That's, that's a basic uh, human need. And, um, and so when we, when, when we think we have a character in film who finds that, when they both find someone that they really belong with, that they're destined to be with, um, it's a satisfying ending and it works. It works for me and, and uh, I've watched this a dozen times easily over the years and I could watch it a dozen more. Well, I think you may have gained a viewer for the film, although you've given us a, a little bit a little bit away about the ending, but you know what? You kind of know how these some of these films are gonna end anyway, yeah. right? It's the Sounds voyage, end. right? It's the voyage that uh, makes the difference. It's on, it's on my list. I'm writing these down uh, as y'all speak. Um, yeah, who's next? Bobby Lee, maybe you could. Uh, I know you're you're in the you're on the stack. We could have Bobby Lee jump in. Yeah, I didn't. I don't want to take up like all the time if other people want to speak. But I was going to no. say to 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 Tim's point of um, having like the average person be like the sleuth. If you watched Who Killed Malcolm X, I don't know if you all watched that docu series on Netflix. Um, but he's like a tour guide in Virginia. He does like the tours of Arlington Cemetery, and he's the one who's like gathered all of this information and he talks to police and he's trying to figure out like what's going on and he like you said just an average worker it's not he's not some extraordinary you know amazing genius person he's just tenacious and wants to figure out what happened to Malcolm X and it's, it's really good um but the other part was about books exploring things right like deeper issues it's not just that surface level stuff um a book I read a little while ago by um it's called it's named Hearts on Hold and it's a romance novel um by Cherish Reed and she's an adjunct in Sweden and the whole thing is, and she's a black woman. And so the whole book, it's so triggering as an adjunct to read the book because um, it's a romance. She, but she talks about racism and higher education, but the way that she does it is the characters experiencing it. The characters experiencing that, you know, that 
asshole elitist in higher education who talks down to everybody and talks down to the librarians and talks down because he is the full-time, you know, whatever the top for full professor can be. Um, and it's the way he interacts. It's the way that she has to change who she is in these rooms to not cause problems and, and just the layers. And so it's, it's really well done because it's not shoved down your throat, but you definitely feel it, especially if you work in academia. So I think it's really interesting when we have books that are now, or even movies that are talking about issues in a way that it's not shoving it at you, it's not forcing it on you, but you're living it and you're feeling exactly what that person feels and what they're going through. Um, and so, yeah, so you talked about like the shop steward and the union and having to deal with that as like part of like that subplot but this was also that, that subplot over there. And then, not that I've watched it recently, but one of my favorite movies is, oh, what is that Jake Gyllenhaal and Anne Hathaway movie? Love, Love and Other Drugs, right? Um, and so she's, you know, she's got, I can't remember which disorder she has, but she has some sort of chronic illness where she's in chronic pain and whatever, right? And he's a drug rep. And everyone focuses on the love story, but it's like, did you all notice that he's paying off doctors to give people his drug and that he's doing like, so the way that it's framed in that underlying part of it, I think is, is really well done, but I think people miss that. Um, but I think those of us who are paying a little bit more attention catch it like, did he just pay that doctor off to force a drug on her that isn't the best thing for her, but he's getting the kickback for it, right? And how that works, so. That's, I mean, that's very, I mean, one issue you raised, Bobby Lee, is the way these narratives, like, who do they, and Tim too, you know, raised the question of like, how do these narratives teach us or, you know, inspire us to look for he leadership, right? Or heroism in one place rather than another. You know, and I mean, I, that's one thing. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier the film Contagion, um, which we watched, you know, multiple times earlier in the pandemic. Uh, and, and one thing that I noticed about that is it's like the whole film is about, um, you know, it, it really, it's the heroes are the technocrats, right? I mean, like the, the scientists, you know, the, the specialists who know, and, 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 and the film really leads to, without giving away the plot of that film, you know, leads you to believe that these, these selfless public servants or these civil servants with their scientific knowledge will save the day. Uh, and as we know in, re, in, in real life, right? There may be great scientists who have great ideas about what should be done or, or basic ideas that it's not rocket science even, that, but there's a political economic establishment that often gets in the way of even, at least in this country, of those, even those basic ideas being put into practice. So I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, Tim making a working class person, right? The hero, right? Uh, versus a uh, Typical Hollywood fare, if regular workers in a lot of these dystopian films make an appearance, it's more like they're basically one step away from the zombie mob. You know, except for like the father figure who may be taking care of his, his you know, son or daughter or, you know, that, that working class person can be humanized. But in so many films, at least at the Hollywood level, it seems like regular people, working class people are people you should be afraid of because they're going to hurt you. They're going to steal from you. They're not going to help you. Maybe the, the government may help you, right? The National Guard. We all know the National Guard and the Army saved our ass, right? They brought us water and food during this pandemic. Oh, wait. That's not how it played out either for the most part. Um, so anyway, I just this whole question of who, you know, how Hollywood trains us to look for, you know, for heroism 
or leadership from certain social sectors versus others? I think maybe a you know, productive question maybe to think about. Linda, what do you think? You're muted. I think I think I agree with with what you're saying about contagion. Um, I I think the screenwriter of contagion was recently asked, "What would you change uh, about the script?" And um, this was after you, you know the lockdowns and and COVID and and he said, "Well, I would actually I would actually uh, make." the government totally different um, because he never he never thought that the US would ever have a government like the one we have now so incompetent right um, in on, in so many ways that he he actually said that if he were to rewrite the script he would have to rewrite the government differently yeah that says a lot right there Okay, so I think Kira. Kira has a series you'd like to share. Great, and then we'll go to MJ. Okay, uh, hi everyone. Uh, I have this show that I recently watched um, where some people go to romance, I go to anime uh, for comfort and silliness and just those great cartoon physics of when it's totally normal to apparently scream and punch someone in the middle of a street and that's totally normal to see them flying across the sky and then they come back 15 minutes later with no like no repercussions on that end um but i recently watched an anime called brave new animal uh no brand new animal sorry i i keep switching it with brave new world and um it, it's by an anime studio i i truly adore called uh studio trigger and the story, it comes across as something very, it, it takes a lot of the regular anime tropes of uh, a very lax, um, a very laxed attitude to physical expression and violence. But then um, the main protagonist is a teenage girl who was the victim of um, a mix-up at a hospital, which affected her ability to go outside and be recognized and a social worker. And all of this is with the backdrop of there are half human, half uh, animal creatures called beast men. And uh, they have human cognition and they've been fighting for equal rights. And, and over the past 10 years, they've established a sovereign city nestled in Japan that has tense political relationships and is backed by a mysterious pharmaceutical company. And without giving too much away, the the social worker and this girl, this girl who had to run away from home because she realized she's a beastman and she cannot go out in society without being persecuted. She cannot talk to her old friends. She cannot go to school. And so she decides to run away to this sovereign city. And then she realizes things in the city isn't just um, all fun and games. She can't just walk around and go to school and everything like she thought she could. And uh, a big part of it is that she is a child she needs adult supervision. So unlike most uh, anime protagonists where it's totally normal to have some child's uh, superheroes start doing the work of adults or something, it's, it's about her deciding to work with her social worker dealing with the different things she gets exposed to in the city. 
uh, ranging from some back dealings in this hospital, the fact that all the data of all the patients and just citizens in the city is technically owned by a European pharmaceutical company. Um, later turns out it's run by a eugenicist and going uh, up against that. And I thought it's not the same narrative of, uh, or it's not the same vein of these are working class people going up against uh, or dealing with these mysteries. There is like certain relationships with a mayor who survived uh, World War II in an internment camp. And um, another big thing they're dealing with is the discovery of a syndrome that as people get stressed or as people react to stress, they turn into monsters. And it was almost kind of beautiful how they had to understand that the reason why they are susceptible to this syndrome isn't because they're beast men. It's not because of some genetic predisposition necessarily, though there's an element of that. It's because these people are dealing with intense stress. They're dealing with a militarized medical system that is actually policing their well-being. Uh, I see someone asked what's the name of the show. So it's called uh, Brand New Animal. It's on Netflix. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a show geared towards children. But for all that it's geared towards children, like many shows now that are geared towards children, there are questions of, of uh, empire that come up. There's questions of corporations and growing into oneself, but growing into oneself isn't just deciding who you are, though there's some element of that. It's a deciding how are you going to relate to the people around you and to your society in general. So I just wanted to throw that out there, even though I know this crowd is probably not full of anime fans. Can I ask real quick, is that would is this appropriate for an eleven year old girl? I'm thinking of my granddaughters. Eleven year old. Love it. Okay, thanks. Cool. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I, I I mean I'm writing these down. I think I'm gonna watch most of these. I'm gonna come back to Tim in a bit for some more uh 40s suggestions, you know, some of these uh these forties, fifties uh classics. But yeah, I think it's great if we can we can leave these social hours with some new some new material that we might want to actually help us stay sane or help us think in a new way about, you know, what we're going through here. MJ, I think you were next. I mean, Linda, do you want to speak to that or anybody have a direct response to uh, Kira's? That was a very rich uh, description. Mm -hmm. um, um, I'm definitely going to watch that. <laughs> that's that's maybe, my- Maybe tonight. That's my response. <laughs> Shoot me a message when you want to join the fan club. Okay. Yeah, 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 right. We'll, we'll do we'll do a watch party or something. Uh, MJ, I think I think you haven't spoken yet, and uh, we'd love to bring you into the conversation. Maybe we can get Mark or Dave to join too at some point. And Dana has joined us as well. Yeah, MJ, I think you're muted. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I kind of don't want to talk. I kind of want to hear some more from Kira about this TV show. Okay, you want to ask her a question? <laughs> maybe. No, no, I'm I I I'll, I could talk. I'm... Okay, you can say something. So. So, um, yeah, um, I'm, gl I'm glad you guys talked about, uh, you know, mentioned the dystopia because um, like 20 years ago, I was, I very much valued dystopias. I mean, like 1984 was, you know, my, my, my favorite book. And outside of that, I mentioned this book by, uh, I guess it's called We, but I think Eugene Zamayadin and uh, Brave New World. And, and 1984 had incredibly important, uh, you know, lessons that we could continue to talk about. But today, I think the whole dystopia genre needs to be thrown out in the garbage. It's absolutely, you know, it's just like horrifying. And I mean, I, I have a friend of mine who actually believes, like, I don't know, but he believes that these dystopias are just totally thrown at us now so we could just kind of get accustomed 
like that's that's the world that, that's the world that you can expect in about 15 years from now you understand but yeah um, uh, no, you want to elaborate a little bit on that? I, I'm tempted to, to, to pitch that one uh, gently towards our Mark Sardestrom, actually, who has his hand up and actually will be joining us as a guest on a show next week. Linda will be also co-hosting with Jerry Canavan on on a, a imagining apocalypse now oh, in the wake okay. of the pandemic. But do you want to say a little more on that, MJ? Before well, well, I guess... Um... No, I mean, I mean, they're up, they're absolutely garbage. The dystopias of today—they're uh, really formulaic. But I mean, just kind of more. Um, my, I'm a, like emotionally, like I'm physically affected by what's kind of happened to the Star Trek franchise. And uh, if you, if you, anybody's watched like the old Star Trek, it was, uh, you know, it was humanistic, some socialistic, you know, aspects. Um, it was a lot about deliberation, exploration. Uh, and it, it kind of, it, not a superficial diversity, like in the new series, there's like a superficial diversity. In the old Star Trek, there was like a diversity of, you know, point, like frames of, of mind, societal configuration, forms of interaction, and what other people bring to the table. So like um, the Star Trek that I see today is like, it's something that you could basically see that was created in the current era um, in which people are extremely stressed out our anxiety is through the roof. We don't believe we could trust anybody. And then they said, okay, well, let's, let's accentuate that even further and say, that's what the future is going to look like. It, it's really hard for me. It's like existentially hard to me because the old Star Trek is something that, I mean, it's like, it's like, my, it's like my, my air, you know, something I breathe. I've been watching forever. And it's like, you look into the future and it expands the political imagination of what we can kind of aspire to. You know what I mean? And, and they just said, we don't really like that. You know, in the new one, they said, well, we, we like, we were watching a lot of uh, something, Game of Thrones. We want to do that. And um, it's really unfortunate, too, because a lot of the people that hate the new Star Trek are uh, political reactionaries. You know, they, they hate, um, you know, identity politics and stuff like this. They hate, you know, women's rights. They hate Black Lives Matter. So you, you wind up being kind of like almost like on the same almost like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's not comfortable to be on the same side of reactionaries. Like they hate the show, but for a different reason. Anyway, that's kind of like, uh, what, what I would really like is that with the left, we were able to create that vision again, you know, ficti fictional, like this is where we should be moving towards, you know, let's, let's think about this, you know? That's about it. Really, really interesting, MJ. Uh, I, I have not watched the recent Star Trek, but I, I did watch Star Trek The Next Generation quite mm -hmm. a bit when I was in my teen middle school. And I did feel like there was that utopian speculative, you know, literally every week you're like visiting a new world. How can society be organized differently, either for better or for worse? And of course, the whole Star Trek, like force, we had kind of a communist or a socialistic, at least, aspect to the society in some hey, way. Money, right? money was eradicated. Right, like, so <laughs> there was that, there was something very optimistic about it in a way, even, mm -hmm. you know. Mark, you're, I mean, clearly we're gonna get into this a lot more next week, and I hope you all oh, will be oh, here. Oh, wait. Um, oh, I'm sorry, be am I jumping before back? That, before that, Kira would like to respond <laughs> to MJ. Yeah. 
MJ, your words give me life. Like, amen <laughs> to everything you said about the Star Trek franchise as it is now. I think so I was excited in 2009 when that reboot film came out. It was a breath of fresh air for a kind of show that, that there hadn't been for, like, what, five years? A little less. It didn't look like to be another series. But then watching those sequels, that went off the rails really fast. Um but what you said earlier about dystopian novels and like just kind of getting people used to the ideas, I saw a quote somewhere on social media the last few days. If I could give a shout out or a citation, I would. But to whoever it was, um, they said, for a, for a book that was trying to uh, warn people on utopias, 1984 gives a great blueprint for authoritarian regimes. And like, yeah, all of my, that's all I wanted to say. I think you're muted, Linda. I think I think Mark Mark has has his hand up. Yeah, great. I mean, I so many things um, from like Godfrey on to to think about and respond to, but but yes, personally, I stopped watching Star Trek and at Enterprise. Right, there was a wonderful article, "Beam Me Back, Scotty," which went. Enterprise, suddenly, you know, they're sexist, suddenly they're xenophobic, suddenly there's sort of imperial racial wars, and it's sort of like, yeah. no, I don't I don't need to go there, right? I don't I don't need my Star Trek. That's not what I need my Star Trek for. Um, so yes, absolutely. Um, I do hope you come next week when we're talking sort of about dystopia and apocalyptic literature, because I share some of your concerns, right? Hunger Games to me is sort of like training how to put up with a bad authoritarian government, retreat to your house and have a perfect little family and ignore everything. But I do think um, there's some really exciting counter trends, right? N.K. Jemisin has sort of a dystopia that's really amazing. Um, Jeff Vandermeer has some dystopias that are really amazing. Uh, Tade Thompson resets dystopia in Africa. Aliette de Baudard has apocalyptic Paris with a Vietnamese main character that the, the colonial world is writing new dystopias going, hey, we've been living with it for a century. Welcome, welcome to the club and giving kind of a new perspective. And I've been reading some of those uh, perhaps in preparation for next week because I'm paranoid to be on a show with Jerry Canavan who's utterly brilliant and I feel like I need to, I need to like brush up. Um, but I think there's a, I, I don't know about the rest of you, but my reading habits, I've been finding it hard to finish things. Um, I've, I've been having it, I've been finding it hard to master the concentration to, to finish narratives that are serious and political right now. Um, and instead I find myself watching, um, cheesy murder mysteries, right? Uh, I've been watching Murdoch Mysteries. It's a really bad, it's a wonderfully cheesy Canadian, you know, murder mystery series that's kind of funny, um, but it gives me 60 minutes and, and it gives me closure, right? It opens up a question, it explores it, it's all satisfyingly done at the end. No, no ambiguity, which is what I generally like in my political narratives is sort of challenge and ambiguity. Um, and I don't know about the rest of you, but have, have other people sort of been finding, I've been hopping from book to book to book because it's just, it's, 
it's hard to keep the, the level of concentration. And Tim, you and I will have to sometime talk about uh, my man Godfrey because I have an a radically different take on that movie than you. Well, we might have to ask you at some point, Mark, um, about that. I don't know if we want to do that right now. Yeah, um, I, you could make a brief, just a brief yeah. hint of what what is what what his issue is. What's your take, Mark? Well, it, it, some of it would give away spoilers, but I think in part, I think I think at base, it's it's the struggle in me between the politics of comedy and the politics of tragedy, and that Godfrey fits sort of a classic interpretation of the conservative politics of comedy. Right? It's the 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 problem is in the individual who needs to adjust themselves, and then they can come together to to have a happy ending, and that the difficulty is. Uh, not not the stock market, but the bad use of the stock market, right? And if we just had smart capitalists who would make money by opening nightclubs and hiring the right people, capitalism, the system is fine. It's individuals that have the problem. And generally when I'm looking for politics, I often look at tragedy because there, no matter what the individual does, they're screwed because it's the system that they're in that's a problem. So I tend to look at Godfrey as sort of a, one of those conservative comedies where it's really, it'd all be fine if, if capitalists just were well-meaning, right? Um, it, it's, it's, Mark, it's definitely not a social critique of capitalism. And it doesn't, <laughs> it, it, it's a Hollywood movie, it doesn't pretend to be, but it does manage to bring out the pathos of the unemployed, uh, and they're and it treats them with dignity. Right. Uh, the solution is obviously a Hollywood fantasy, but it brings out their condition and the, and their and their humanity in a very moving way. And William Powell, when he explains to this ditzy young rich girl what a why he's a forgotten man, what that means, it's it, it's as powerful as any scene in uh, The Grapes of Wrath to me. That moment. Wow. Even though it doesn't come up with the same critique. But it has that same pathos of the of the of the forgotten, the abused, the downtrodden, the victim of capitalism. So and, I'll stand by it. <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 talk more. Well, I, I understand. I understand. I mean, it, it might be worth. I mean, putting on a scholarly hat for one moment. I don't know this film, and it's also on our list now. I think if if Linda approves, uh, we'll dig in. But uh, there is a you know there. What year was the film made? I mean, roughly. 36. 36. 36. I mean, there. my understanding, you know, obviously there was a left-wing presence in Hollywood, but the thing about films is that unlike novels, you know, at least many novels, it's the author, you know, the writers often didn't control uh, the overall arc of the story that they're hired to help tell. So you find this, you can find this real unevenness within films you know you might have a communist writing part of the script you know right but the director as a t or the studio has a totally different take so you might find this like compelling description right of uh in in, in you know narrative uh scenes you know dialogue that's really illuminating but then you know it's all wrapped up with a bow in the end that makes it seem you know like everything's going to be okay and it's just a pro you know like everything mark said Right, the over. So sometimes it's you know in between you know there may be these un the unevenness. We'd have to look at actually who is writing and directing and 
And maybe there is some like contradictions within these texts. I mean, there could be contradictions in novels too, but the contradictions in film can be a whole other kind of product of this, this production, this collective production that's done under corporate control ultimately, even if you know there are some left-wingers in the mix. So yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm totally watching it and then we can, we can really have a debate. <laughs> if we could do a comedy versus tragedy show, you know, um, how do we understand our, our narrative we're in right now? Is it a comedy or is it tragedy or what the hell is it? Um, well, now we have the genre of dark comedy, right? It's funny, but structurally tragic, right? Brazil yeah. is the perfect dark comedy, right? <laughs> yeah, we watched that too, actually, on, on during pandemic, yeah. yeah oh God, watch, yeah. there's a, there's a full, there's a, there's, yeah, anyway, there's a documentary on the making of Brazil and how Hollywood tried to make it in, make the happy ending. Uh, in Brazil. Oh wow, Linda! I think you have a better sense of maybe who's who's next. Is it? Uh... I believe Victor. All right. I think you may be muted, Victor, or your mic is not picking up. Victor, we're seeing you, but we're not hearing you. I don't know if you want to unplug your mic. There you go. Very quiet. Is Not your volume up? Are you still plugged in? Well, maybe Victor, maybe you could you could play. Somebody could help Victor get the audio right. We heard him before. We're not hearing him now. Looks like could his we go wires just have a poor connection. He probably we heard him it. earlier. Um, maybe he's someone of the producers can help Victor. Let's go to Bobby Lee, and we can work with Victor at the same time while Bobby Lee adds uh, adds a comment to the mix. Yeah, I definitely, like Mark, I have struggled to read. Like, I'm usually a bookworm. I can finish, you know, a book in a couple of days without an issue, but it's it's hard to focus. Like, my brain just can't focus. And it's not just on books. It's also been on work, um, where I so want to know what's happening in the world. I want to be following the protests and this and that. So, like, I want to watch social media and I want to do this um, rather than work or rather than read or whatever else. Um, but then I go to those comfortable shows. Um, when you were saying like those murder mystery, like the formulaic shows, it reminded me of my mom's obsessed with Hallmark, you guys, like obsessed with Hallmark movies. I don't know if you've ever watched a Hallmark movie or show, but they are, they're pretty bad. Um, but they're also very comforting. And I didn't realize that Hallmark was a religious channel until more recently. Um, so you'll never see like the characters have sex. You'll never, like they'll never, like they barely kiss. Like it's very um, in that vein. But there's a series that my mom and I, we read the books and then recently Hallmark turned it into a movie series and it's the Murder, She Baked series um, by Hannah Swenson. And so in the books, like the books themselves, God, there's like 15 or 20 of them. Um, every time, like she's a small town baker and then she'll find a dead body, right? Or something will happen. It's, kind of, it's like Murder, She Wrote, right? But she's a baker, not a writer. And then she has to help solve it. Um, but in the books, I will recommend the Bobby Lee, we're uh, are we hearing Bobby Lee? No, uh, we lost you in the middle. And okay, looks like we literally lost Bobby Lee. She's maybe rebooting. Bob, try again. I don't know what happened. It completely kicked me out. Okay, we um, lost you ten seconds ago. Okay, so oh, yeah. I recommend the books over the movies for like the Murder She Bake series because the books have all the recipes. 
So because she's a baker, anything she bakes is in the book. Like the actual recipe is in the book. Um, so I recommend it, but it just kind of reminded me of that. And then I've also heard um, what MJ had said about like the prepping you kind of for the future. So I know people have talked about it in the way of, what was it, Minority Report, I think, um, with like the videos and how like the ads are targeted to you based on facial recognition. So as he's like walking, you see a different ad come up for him than the person behind him than the person behind him. And so people were like, they were preparing us for what they do now, like they're stalking our Google and our phones and all of that. Um, and so I, I've heard that ideology as well. Like somehow 1984 and idiocracy became like, like guides to how the future should be <laughs> instead of like either horror or comedy about it. Um, yeah. And then to go back to, I think someone brought up Hunger Games. I, at first I was like, I'm not reading a book about teenagers killing themselves. And then a friend of mine was like, no, it's all conflict theory. Like you have to read it. And I did. And reading it as like a sociologist, the conflict theory, the those in power without and kind of navigating those spaces and reading it in that way I really enjoyed it and then I recently read A Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes which is their prequel and it just wasn't as good and I think it's because it's all about snow it's all about President Snow and his like background and when he was a kid I don't know if you all had read the you know Hunger Games books or saw the movies um but it's just it's like he was a spoiled entitled kid who thought he was going to be great and then had to go through like life and life happened and everyone was poor and he feels like he deserved better and I was like I don't relate to this character like I don't like this book as much as I liked her first three and maybe it's just because I don't relate to him um but yeah so yeah that that sounds really disturbing to me in the sense that like oh we have the the you know the totalitarian corporate you know uh dictator oh he must have had a traumatic childhood like so much for like systemic critique, like that the system yeah. actually needs a brute, a, an unjust system needs a brute to, in, you know, to divide and conquer the people. Oh no, just, he's just a particularly traumatized individual. I don't know, I've just let that kind of psychological individualizing, yeah. Like yeah. would strip what is good about the Hunger Games. At least the first couple books I found to be very compelling. And then I, the third one, I'm, I'm, I think I'm kind of with Mark. Um, the first one, there's something interesting about solidarity in that. I won't give away the plot for those, although everyone's seen it, I guess, or watched it. Um, can we just test Victor's audio? Victor, are you? Yes, can you hear me now? Oh, good, okay, okay. Good. Okay, good. Yeah, you wanna jump in here? Or do you, do yeah, I... sure. I, I, I had a, a brief comment that occurred to me when you were talking about comedy and tragedy. I, I'm someone who spends, uh, finds very little time to indulge in fiction, although I do appreciate its importance. And I, in, in a sense, I, I'm a parasite on other people's observations about it. Uh, one thing I do remember though, is a, a remark made by Garcia Marquez uh, about magical realism, because he was asked, asked about uh, where he gets his ideas. And he said that th these fantastical characters and things that he writes about are all actual people uh, in, in the history. I mean, he may portray them in a certain way, but they're actual people. And for me, uh, I, looking at the current scene, it's both tragic and comical. I mean, to me, the essence of comedy is absurdity and some kind of extreme behavior, uh, which makes no sense. And to me, the best journalists, uh, the, the greatest journalists, or let's say the ones I find most entertaining are at the same time comedians. And one of them is Lee Camp, uh, 
whose uh, work uh, I strongly recommend. You, uh, I sh imagine most of you are familiar with him, both as a stand-up comedy writer, uh, performer, but also as a writer with his book that just came out called Bullet Points and Punchlines, which I mentioned on the S Socialism Democracy blog. And also now uh, Greg Pallast, who's just come out with his book called How Trump Stole 2020. And all of the things that he recounts are things that are actually done, but the, the schemes and the, the trickery and the uh, evil genius, you might say, uh, of, the, of the system that uh, screws people out of their capacity to participate is, is, so, is so extreme. That it, and, and he has the wit to tell it in an entertaining way so that he makes uh, something amusing out of really what, what's a horrible scene. So we have with both these uh, people, uh, the, both these political activists, uh, Greg Pallast and Lee Camp, uh, an example of people who can perform, can provide in a sense entertainment out of something that's admittedly horrible precisely by bringing out its, its true nature and to its fullest, fullest extent. Yeah, Lee Camp is really interesting. He, he hosts a show as, as well, right? Uh, it's a- Redacted what, Tonight. Redacted Tonight, yeah, yeah. He gives a, it's a, it's a le you know, it's to the left of, uh, you know, the old John Stewart and, and, uh, and uh, what's the, the, the new one we've been watching recently- uh, Trevor this, Noah. This week tonight. Right, this week tonight with, uh, last week tonight with John Oliver. Oh, John yeah, Oliver, Camp yeah. is a much sharper radical yeah. uh, critic in that way, but, but he is still funny. I think he is still funny, I agree, yeah. yeah. Matt, Matt Taibbi is kind of that way too, in his own way, not, not picking a fight with MJ here, I know, um, but uh, value the humor. But, but again, there's certainly a lot that could be said there. Yeah, what do we have? Linda, you wanna start, speak to that? All right, uh, let's see. Uh, Dave Burt or Dana Moser, uh, would you like to share? Uh, I'm sorry, I, I came in so late. I actually had, I, I went tuned in last week to see Demita mm -hmm. and uh, I was so excited about that show. And I, I thought actually that this week was gonna be a thing on, on uh, dystopian cinema. And oh, I came nice. in so late, but now I'm just, I, so I've just been, I, I feel like I'm totally irresponsible because I haven't really been, uh, I didn't come in at the beginning to understand the context of what you're talking about. Well, it's okay, D Dana. We're actually next week. We'll be formally focused on dystopia and uh, apocalyptic fiction narrative. But this, we are we have brushed up against it, though, as you may have may have heard today as well. Even though we're it's kind of like warming up informally for next week in that way. So you can certainly feel free to speak to that aspect if you if you like, or 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 more broadly. Well, if we're talking about pop cultural things, I. I um, a couple of friends of mine, uh, queer people of color say, have told me, oh, you have to watch I May Destroy You because it's like an amazing drama. And uh, with my partner and I started watching the first episode and this person is a uh, sexual abuse survivor. <laughs> and since there's a kind of drugged and raped implied something or other in that series i'm just wondering if there's anybody here on the conversation right now who's seen that series it's it's a, a black woman british uh, uh writer and actor who's the director and also wrote uh i think the entire series does anybody here know anything about that series i may destroy you i don't okay anyway i was just curious if someone had already seen it if they had a critique or a conversation or 
could give me a heads up about what the upcoming episodes are, what they would be like for somebody who's kind of triggered by uh, sexual violence. The, the rap from the New York Times about it is that it is this uh, a millennial uh, black queer British woman who's like writing and uh, also acting and uh, weaving a kind of complex uh, narrative that is uh, kind of reflective of uh, her generational values. So uh, it inherently is, uh, you know, gay positive and people take drugs and it's, it's sort of about decriminalization it sort of is implied, but not without, but doesn't make any kind of rhetorical points about that. It's simply just assumed. Yeah, I don't know if we have anyone who can speak to that directly, but thanks for, I mean, we're looking for, you know, we are looking for recommendations and Mark, do you wanna, do you have a, a thought on that? Looks like, no? Okay, You're, you are muted, but I, I see that you don't wanna speak to that in particular. The thing, one one text, one show you reminded me of in, in a way as you spoke was the show Babylon Berlin. I don't know if other people have been watching this. Uh, that is an incredible show. I, again, I mean, again, very disturbing and very, I mean, looking at kind of the, the tw 1920s, early 30s Berlin and the kind of, um, it, it puts together, you know, kind of some very interesting, uh, you know, the scenery and the backdrop for much of it. I mean, it's both kind of the rise of the fascism and the Nazi party, the struggle between police and communists in the street, but also like the Berlin nightclubs. And there's a very strong prominence of kind of, you know, kind of all kinds of gender and, and, and sexual diversity and kind of trans characters. It's very, I mean, it's an incredible mix. Uh, I mean, even just the, the musical, if you watch, listen to the musical in intro of that show and don't find yourself simultaneously com compelled to watch and absolutely horrified, just based literally the drum beats that lead into the show almost to me embodies like just like the crisis of, 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 of that moment and maybe even the crisis we're in now, the way things can be full of possibility and also full of danger at the same time. And so that's just, uh, I mean, you're just reminding me of that in some way. Um, and I just, that's one I wanted to mention. If people haven't checked that out, I would really recommend it. Although it's another one where I feel like it starts out so social, like the first Hunger Games book even, I feel like has this really interesting social commentary. By the end, by the third one, I don't know if it's there anymore. I feel like sometimes they're like rushing these things to market. Once they get a hit, it's like produce another one quick. You know, you have writers that spend 10 years working on the first one and then like six months on the second and, you know, less on the third. So, um, but Babylon Berlin is one. I was wondering if maybe before we move towards wrapping up, if we could, you right. know, maybe everyone could recommend something, but we don't need to jump to that yet. We, we're flexible here, but yeah, Dana, you want to, you want to jump to that? Yeah. Did anyone here read this book, Badenheim, 1939? It's about people living in a village in, in, in Badenheim, Germany, it's a Jewish community, and they're, uh, they think they're sort of watching the approach of the Nazis, and they're going, it, things look ominous, but they can't get that bad, can they? And there, there's like rumors of like how bad things can possibly get, and uh, it's striking because uh, 
those are the conversations I've been having with people in the contemporary moment where people are saying, yeah, you know, Trump is not going to give up power. At the last minute, he's going to actually drop a nuclear weapon someplace and the world will be in such chaos that, and then I'm saying things like, yeah, but other people will intervene, you know, like it couldn't get that insane, could it? And like, <laughs> so at any rate, that, that book, Bodenheim, 1939, I think is kind of interesting. I think the, that whole discussion that is a comparison to the rise of, of the Nazis is totally relevant, I think, right now. I know the brown shirts are really available right now. We watch them on the news every evening. You know, these militia people coming out with the Trump hats, they're ready to, you know, be the enforcers. So that, the, the dialogue about parallels in uh, the rise of fascism are, are kind of striking to me in this particular moment. I don't know, I'm just, I'm rambling. I'm sorry to indulge in No, that. I mean, I, th I think, and Linda and I have talked about this as well, that we might do a show that would look more at the way that fascism and anti-fascism are being represented in pop culture in recent years. We've, we, I, they're on our list, we haven't mentioned them, but you know, Linda could say more about this too, but we've, we've watched a number of, of things about this dimension. And I think it is um, interesting to consider the, you know, the similarities and differences, right? Uh, between the way you know some of these narratives are being represented and 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 the fact there are so many right we've had what the plot against America man in the high castle uh, a number that are very much about you know the possibility of a fascist United States coming out of the 30s 40s 50s what if the Nazis had won kind of stuff I know Linda and I have talked about that a bit I don't know Linda do you want to say something about that about um, the films that we saw about yeah anything, yeah yeah. Uh, well, I thought I thought those are those are all really interesting, uh, but they were all they were all different. I, I really thought that that uh, Babylon Berlin was interesting uh, because it's kind of the the prequel to uh, to what happens, right? Um, and then I also thought that Man in the High Castle was really interesting. I, I don't know how many of you have seen Man in the High Castle. It's a series. Yeah, it's a streaming series. Um, so I thought that the alternative world that had been constructed there was was super interesting. Um, and, and then when they started kind of going into alter like alternative universes, right, like where uh, the same people live. Um, I, I kind of got a little bit lost there. Um, but I feel like, I feel like the show has an overall point to make that I thought, um, that I thought that I'm actually still trying to grapple with. So, yeah. I think one, one point we talked about was that how much the Nazi establishment party, like after the, the Nazis have taken over America or, and or part of the American establishment has sided with the Nazis, right? It doesn't, you know, there's a mil American military officers that become Nazi officers, but how much of their, their like daily life looks like something out of the Stepford wives, you know? It's just like, it just looks like good, clean, you know, 90, at least nine days out of 10, it's just, it's just like perfect 50s, you know, segregated, 
upper middle class America. And then like on the 10th day, you might have to put your disabled kid to sleep, you know? But it's like nine out of 10 days, it's like, Amer you know, it's like the American dream baby, you know, of a certain era. Uh, but then there are some other things that are different. But I, but actually I like that part of the film. Like I like that estrangement effect, right? Taking something that like looks familiar and then asking us, uh, how different does your like your upper middle class white suburb look from like the same place in a Nazi occupied America? Like how different, right? How, 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 you know, it doesn't have to, Nazism doesn't have to look that different all the time. It might in fact come in a, you know, an American flag, right? Um, as we, as we you know, we're discovering. Um, so that was one thing I liked about that series. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, MJ had his hand up for a while. Great. You got to unmute yourself. Please I remember to got unmute. it off mute. So um, about the man in the high castle, yes. Although I've been boycotting Amazon for a few years now, I back back years ago I did see like I think the first two seasons. And although like I've said like I think you know the whole dystopian stuff needs the the TV show is going to be thrown in the garbage. You know that that's actually based on a book from you know decades ago, right? What Philip Dick and uh, and and that that's a good series because it's providing. People have, um, they're inspired, you know, they're working towards this other world where, you know, that's incredibly important as far as I'm concerned of a vision, right? Isn't that what they're, they're dealing with? There's a vision, there's another way of living, this whole hell hell that we're going through. This isn't, this isn't the truth. That, that's so beautiful about that story. Right, and, um, and, fil and in a way, film itself represents, right. right, the possibility of a different world Right. right, it circulates through the kind of Nazi occupied world, right? There are these films that are giving people a flicker of uh, that it is or could be different. Right. right, which is different than, you know, most dystopias where it's like, oh, this person's gonna kill me. Oh, you can't trust them, but I'm gonna have sex with them right now. You know, and they're, they're constantly like, this is, this is actually something that people collectively believe in, you know, that they're living for, they're fighting for, it's incredibly important. But as far as uh, something that I've seen recently, um, there's a ABC, uh, Australian broadcasting channel, I guess. They had a little mini series, I guess it came out last year, a few months back. Um, and it was dropped on Netflix a few days ago. And it's about the equivalent of their ICE, you know, their immigration border patrol stuff. It's in Australia. Um, it's a six, six part series, a little mini series called Stateless. And it's, um, it's part of it's based on a true story of an Australian woman of, of German, I guess, what, extract, who was, for months, she was uh, in one of these, like, Australian ICE detention centers. And it, it, it's based on a true story, and it exposes, like, the brutality of the guards, the lying of, you know, the, the agents and everything like that, the tactics that they did to make sure that the media doesn't find out. It's, it's pretty powerful. I mean, not all of it's true because you could see like articles about which was, you know, they took liberties with. But if anybody has like a few hours, I mean, like it's only six episodes. It's called Stateless on Netflix. It just dropped a few days ago. So I'd, I'd highly recommend it. And, but again, I think it's like a nice propaganda tool. You know, if we want to like, if people say, well, ICE is just doing their job. You know, just send, say, well, okay, watch, watch this. Okay, this is based on real life ICE in Australia. What do you think? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, thanks for that, MJ. That, I've been seeing that pop up on the queue or whatever. Um, maybe we'll right. maybe we'll bump it up. Okay. Well, that's yeah. Me. Thanks for that. No, I mean, and I think it, you raise another good question: is what is our relationship to like if we are thinking as activists, if we are trying to cultivate critical thinking in others and in ourselves? What is our relationship to this? 
material. It isn't necessarily, in my view, it's not necessarily the case that like the cultural work does the politics for, it's not like it contains the political message itself, but it, it presents something that can be teased out, right? Or that can open up issues that can be raised in a less fictional way. I'm actually kind of with Victor lately, except for watching. I have not had a chance to read fiction in quite some time. There's so much I feel like I need to just arm myself with to be able to intervene. But uh, but yeah, I think I think there's different ways. You know, something to think about maybe in a future show is you know how we think we use this stuff. How do we put this cultural matter to, to use? Um, yeah, I thought Linda, let's go to you, and then maybe we can move towards uh, bringing in some others. You're muted again. Okay, so I thought we would just take one last round. Um, if if you want to, you can share one uh, one last book or film that um, that you watched and or read, and you can like it or not. Um, and so we'll just go around. Yeah, and we'll just let people go back to back, so, so to let everybody make sure everybody has a chance to share something, you know, uh, a comment or a suggestion, maybe. Bobby Lee, I know you had some, maybe go Bobby Lee, Tim, Mark, and then uh, the rest of you. Yeah, if one thing we didn't talk about, but I think was a really good show, it was on Hulu with Little Fires Everywhere. Um, just the first half, you're thinking it's going one way and then halfway through it switches and it's, it's only eight episodes, but I think it's super powerful. Um, and I think it's really, really good. And I, I mean, I've had students reach out to me like, professor, did you watch this yet? Because that's how impactful it was for them where they were seeing things we talked about in class in the show. So three with Reese Witherspoon and Carrie, um, Carrie Washington. I was gonna say Carrie Russell, wrong Carrie, Carrie Washington. Thanks Bobby Lee. Tim? Yeah, I would recommend the best years of our lives, 1945, Myrna Lloyd, Dana Andrews. It's about three servicemen who are, uh, demob they're relieved from service and then they've come back to their small town midwestern town and each of them has things they have to struggle with like finding work this is a, this is a recession it's unemployment and one of the young soldiers he married this woman and then the day before he left for the war so he doesn't really know her so there's a there's a strain in their in their marriage and it's just, it, it handles it very realistically, I think, the, the difficulties with finding your place again in society after living as a soldier for years and years. And that was what you did. That's who you were. Yeah. It's just a great movie. Oh. And one of the uh, soldiers is a back uh, to his wife and his young adult children. And when he comes into the apartment, he sees his daughter. And he tells her, you know, don't don't say anything. And then he sees his son, says, don't say anything. And then uh, the, the, his wife is in the kitchen and she calls out, who was that at the door? And then she realizes it's her husband who's been away for four years. And it's so moving. It's such a beautiful scene. Um, and their stories are just beautifully told, beautifully told, the best years of our lives. I, I, we've seen it, my wife and I, at least a dozen times. And we'll watch it a dozen more, I'm sure, before we're done. Thanks, Tim. Mark? Uh, since I've been having difficulty finishing large texts, I'll recommend uh, an author who's writing short texts and novellas. Um, P. Jelly Clark, Jelly with a D-J-E-L-I. Um, 
He writes sort of historical speculative fiction, uh, some set in Cairo. Um, but if you're going to read one, read his short story, The Nine Mysterious Lives of George Washington's Negro Teeth. Whoa. That's, that's quite a title. The Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington. Sorry, The Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington. Um, wow. Yeah, that's got my attention. Um, Victor and Dana, I don't mean to put people on the spot, but would you like to say uh, Victor, Dana, Kira again, perhaps, uh, MJ, and then maybe we'll wrap up. We're going to get to hear a lot more from Mark Soderstrom next week as a featured guest on our next program, uh, also co-hosted by, by Linda, Linda Liu and myself. So, um, yeah. You know, uh, I would just add about the Greg Palast book uh, that it's extremely timely for obvious reasons and a very good one to spread around to, to many people. So, so I, I don't have any additional titles be, beyond Lee Camp and Greg Palast, but uh, go for those. They're entertaining as well as politically astute. And the name of that book is, the, you said the... the uh, Greg Palast is How Trump Stole 2020. And, yeah. and Lee Camp is uh, Bullet Points and Punchlines. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, disturbing it itself, but we'll, let's check it out. Uh, Kira. On a much less uh, serious note or a much sillier note, I do recommend the um, bizarre airplane comedy um, cabin, cabin Pressure. It's a radio drama from BBC4. It would have aired about a decade ago. Um, the, the comedian writer has recently done a video series uh, called Cabin Fever, which is uh, a sort of one-man follow-up to the series, but I highly recommend Cabin Pressure. It is a very bizarre 26 episodes, and it's available both on YouTube and uh, on any podcast uh, resource you listen to. Thanks, Kira. Uh, Dana and MJ to wrap up, I think? I have just a couple of things I've been reading. One is uh, uh, Gia Tolento's book, Trick Mirror. It's a thing, reflections on pop culture from sort of millennial uh, perspectives that a bunch of my students were recommending to me. And I, I was looking at some of the essays there I thought were pretty interesting. And then because I'm kind of monitoring the uh, rise of fascism and uh, nativism and stuff internationally, I, I wound up rereading Hannah Arendt's book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. And I've been finding surprising things in that that I hadn't remembered. Like one is how amazingly effective the subversive behavior was when people when the nazis were actually trying to institute their program the italians would do things like lose their lists <laughs> and the danes they would do these th amazingly effective things that were not actively fighting against the people who were an occupying army but they just would like be you know we we had that roundup list of all the jews in this neighborhood and we we like lost the list and uh I had forgotten that there, were, there was that thread that went through the trial for Eichmann. Yeah, that's, a, that's an argument for keeping things in paper. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I think uh, Linda and I are gonna share a recommendation in a minute. I'll come back to this, but let's go to MJ first. And then Seren actually, our producer Seren has something to share too. The uh, last thing that I was trying to go through is the end of policing as far as, far as books. But the, the book that I, uh, I think of all the time 
and which I, I've been really meaning to get through is uh, Racecraft by the Field Sisters. Everybody, anybody familiar with that? Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think about it. I think about it all the time, and I think that most, um, you know, most people that I hear talking about this stuff, they're just kind of, I mean, like if I can, I think in some ways the left and and liberals, which I separate them, are going back. We're kind of reifying, like re reifying the concept of race as a biological construct. And I think a, a lot of liberals, they're, they, they are, uh, they'll say race is a social construct, but then the way that they talk about all this stuff, it's like they're kind of skirting around. It's like that we really do believe that there's like these biological racial constructs, these uh, racial realities of black and white and um, you know black genes, black blood. And uh, people talk about you know, these abstractions of blackness and whiteness. and I think that the Field Sisters are a breath of fresh air when they talk about how much all these concepts, was, these are white supremacist constructions from centuries ago, how much we continue to communicate in, the, in this language. Uh, so that's, yeah. it's, it's, that's, a, that's a book that I, it's kind of on my immediate list, but that's about it. Thanks for that, MJ. No, that's, yeah. that's really important. I think we had Seren, and then we'll go back to, I guess, Linda and, and me get to leave you with a recommendation before we wrap up. And, Kick it to next week, Seren. Yeah, you know, MJ just uh, provided an opportunity to exercise one of my peeves. If something's a social construct, it is still real. That's that's something important to note, at least from my opinion. Um, you know, money has no value except as a social construct, and so um, so I think we we have to think about race that way. It has no biological reality. But, but it, it does have a social reality that we have to accept as we try to overcome it. And anyway, so that's just my peeve. But the, the book that I was thinking about throughout the show, especially as people began to talk about Nazism, is, is a, it's a fiction book that just came out. I'll show it and I hope it comes across. It's by Isabel Allende called a long petal of the sea. And it's a really interesting uh, account for me in the sense that um, it deals with the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War in which uh, the lead character, the protagonist, uh, a person named Victor, escapes uh, Franco, goes to France, has to leave France by 1939, and ends up in Chile as a, um, as a refugee, only to again in 1973 have to escape fascism in Chile, or at least the Chilean equivalent. And so the, the A Long Petal of the Sea documents the multiple um, exiles of this character. And in some ways, I think she captures a moment in our world, you know, where US citizens now are barred from Europe by COVID-19. And yet there are people being left state, uh, stateless in so many instances. And, um, and Trump would have made, you know, several hundred thousand uh, uh, foreign students living in the United States stateless or effectively stateless um, uh, just a few days ago, uh, let alone leaving other millions uh, in some kind of um, jeopardy for uh, and threat uh, living under the threat of deportation. So I think Isabel Allende having gone through the experience of uh, at least the Chilean experience is really a writer for our times. In, in some respects though she 
she doesn't really go far enough. She has been so, I think, perhaps jaded by political experience that all ideologies are treated with suspicion when clearly there is one dominant ideology right now that has to be dethroned and that needs counter ideology. So that's all I'll have to say about um, what I'm reading and what I'd like to see people read. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Seren. Uh, and that, again, Isabel Allende, very much worth reading. I think MJ just had a couple, uh, has a couple sentences that he'd like to share before we go out. I think Seren, I actually think this issue of race and social construction is a topic for a new show. So we're not gonna resolve it now. Um, but I think that the fields have something, some great contributions and there are other writers we should, we should come back to. But MJ, just, just for good measure, let's, if you could make a brief comment and then we will go to Linda uh, and then we'll wrap up on this theme. Yeah, please. Yes, so, Soren, I, I just want to be totally clear. I'm, my, my position isn't that it's only a social construct. It doesn't exist. It's not significant. It doesn't have pull over our lives. I'm just talking about the way in which um, we're reifying the concept that it's a biological construct. And I see that, see that all around. I think we should be very cautious with getting into pseudoscience, especially that created by white supremacists. But yeah, social constructs, obviously, I'm not, they have an incredible impact over our lives, no matter how that they came about being created. But when we yeah. believe in them, just to make that totally clear. And in fact, bringing it back to our theme of today and looking about movies and narratives, right? I mean, there is a certain thing when people believe a narrative powerfully, then that narrative has real force, even if the narrative is made up, right, by someone um, in the sense of Hollywood culture in general, right? If you're the only one who doesn't believe the narrative, you may get run over by it nonetheless. Um, Linda, would you like to finish? Uh, you, you share yours and, I, and, I'll, and I'll share mine and then we'll wrap up. Okay, <laughs> not muted. Uh, okay, so one of the films I saw recently that really, really left an impression on me um, was Sorry We Missed You, uh, directed by Ken Loach, and it came out in 2019. And it's just a devastating film um, about the uphill Sisyphean uh, financial struggle of this working class family. And, and it's also about the oppressive working conditions of uh, workers in the gig economy. And uh, so I'm just going to give you, I guess, a, a really, a really, really quick plot. Um, so the father, Ricky, um, really doesn't have much education or professional skills. So he gets hired to drive a, um, his own delivery, um, his own delivery van. And he's supposedly self-employed. Right, but he still gets paid um, by this company. So it's, it's kind of like an Uber type deal. Um, and so in order to afford the van that he needs for this job, uh, he has to ask Ricky's wife, Abby, to sell her car. And she needs her car because she's a um, home nurse and needs to drive to the different homes of her elderly patients. And so she does sell her car and um, and so hardships start to ensue all around. Um, so Ricky's job is super strict. Um, he has a very, very strict schedule for, for delivery. 
And if he's late even a little bit, or if he makes a little mistake, um, he's docked to pay. He's fined. And um, Abby also has a really, really stringent work schedule and she has to take uh, the public buses to go see her clients and uh, sometimes the buses just don't come. So anyway, um, so what really resonated with me about this film was how, how there's so many essential workers right now, right? Um, people being called essential um, who are basically doing work like that, like, um, like being delivery drivers, right? Um, being home care workers. And, um, and I think the film did a really, really good job of, of just um, making one of the most searing indictments of the gig and service economies that I've ever seen. So I highly recommend the film. Yeah. And that's one we can agree, agree on. We didn't agree on only last night, but we definitely agree on uh, Sorry We Missed You. Not to be confused with Sorry to Bother You, also wat worth watching the Boots Riley uh, worker, you know, worker coming of age slash dystopian horror, <laughs> horror film by the communist, black communist activist and, and uh, lyricist uh, Boots Riley. Sorry We Missed You by Ken Loach. And I'm just gonna add another Ken Loach film that Linda and I also watched together, highly recommending, and I won't say that much about it, but I, Daniel Blake, which tells the struggle of a working, a, 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 a working class man, a, a carpenter, a woodworker, who has uh, had to go on relief due to a heart attack he's had, but finds that the bureaucracies, um, are just designed to punish and to make it as hard as possible for someone to get on relief, which again, just reminds us as, uh, you know, if Linda's suggestion, Ken Loach uh, reminds us of the essential worker, uh, I, Daniel Blake, reminds us of the unemployed and the struggles of the unemployed. And I think that and no discussion of, you know, the leisure time and culture and its meaning uh, is complete without returning to the basic fact that for many people in this society and beyond, um, Leisure time is, is scarce um, and Netflix accounts don't come free. And so, uh, you know, like, uh, like uh, some philosopher said once, uh, hope is given to uh, those, is given to those to, you know, to fight for the hopeless. Uh, those of us who have time to read and watch have a certain obligation to put that time to good use, even if sometimes the most useful we thing we can do maybe is to be a little useless for a while. Uh, so yeah, thank you all for sharing a, a couple of useless but not useless hours here. Uh, useful uselessness here with Shelter and Solidarity in our impromptu, uh, in our open format, which we do from time to time is our social hour. We'll be back next week in a much more disciplined manner, but still hopefully fun and engaging with you, with Mark Soderstrom, with Linda Liu, with Jerry Canavan on the topic of Apocalypse Now, reflecting on end times and dystopian narrative in light of the COVID pandemic. We hope you'll join us for that. That'll be next week, Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard. Join us by Zoom, follow us on YouTube, um, and share this content with your friends. Check your, your inboxes for your emails. If you're on our email list, make sure you check your promotions list so you don't miss it. And help us build the shelter and solidarity community. I really value the conversation with all of you. 
And if you'd like to hang out for the debrief after we stop recording, you're welcome to do that. Otherwise, see you next week. Passing through me like a girl